This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. The policy-setting gatherings of China's ruling Communist Party are events so epic, the state news agency created a media brain to mine all the data. But never mind the detail, this week's Communist Party Congress was a watershed event for the world, setting China's economic and diplomatic policy for the foreseeable future. Now that's a huge deal for a trading country like ours, and this week we look at some of the coverage in our media, some of which came from an unexpected place. Also, we look at how the British political chaos has produced some unbroadcastable moments. I'm absolutely effing furious. I just don't effing care anymore. What a <laughs> But it's not just British broadcasters lately that have been struggling with words not fit for the air. It's obscene. You cannot say that. But first, the sum was insignificant, and so were the real-life consequences of a single arts funding decision that was actually made weeks ago. But it triggered claims of cancel culture that filled the news bulletins this week for days. To be or not to be, that is the question. Government funding for the annual secondary school Shakespeare Festival, Sheila Wynne, is not to be. That was Tova O'Brien on Today FM's breakfast show last Monday and she wasn't the only one picking the most obvious available intro for the issue of Bardgate. To be or not to be, that is the question. And as far as Shakespeare is concerned, Creative New Zealand says the answer is not. And later that day, Stuff senior writer Virginia Fallon kicked off a comment piece with this. More than 400 years after William Shakespeare posed his famous to-be-or-not-to-be question, Aotearoa has finally answered by picking the latter and cancelling the playwright. In news easily mistaken for satire, Creative New Zealand refused to fund a Shakespeare festival for college students. And there was plenty more where that came from in coverage that was a bit more like satire mistaken for news. Fallon said the reasons for their Creative New Zealand decision were all jumbled up in a word-shaped nonsense much like that of the bard himself. Though one reason Shakespeare has endured all these years is actually his precision and clarity with words. On Morning Report, Corin Dan though was pulled up for some less precise language. Tanya Roxburgh is an author and high school teacher who says the decision is misguided. Tanya joins us now. Good morning, kia ora. Oh, tēnā koe, I'm putting around saying that it was misguided. Oh, um, no. OK. <laughs> and plenty more in the media coverage of all this was misleadingly creative about what Creative New Zealand had actually done and not done. And among those co-opting all this as a political poke at the woke was the vote-seeking missile that is Winston Peters on the same edition of RNZ's Morning Report. And then they're going to cancel Shakespeare. This is just getting into a state of madness, and New Zealand is also sick and tired of it. In fact, no one had cancelled Shakespeare or canned any Shakespeare festival, and the bard had not been barred, as the Otago Daily Times punningly claimed last Tuesday. And on Morning Report, that teacher Tanya Roxburgh went on to tell Corin Dan, you couldn't shake off Shakespeare even if you wanted to. You know, he, he won't die because he's so amazing. I love him. <laughs> hey, well, amazing stuff. Thank you very much for talking to us this morning. But along for lots of love for the bard, there was heaps of crude criticism of Creative New Zealand, which didn't help itself by refusing many interviews once the story had blown up in the headlines late last week. And tellingly, that was sometime after the apparently inflammatory funding decision had actually been made, along with the canon of imperialism claim that so many people felt was seriously wide of the mark, but ultimately could only be sheeted home to just one individual assessor of the projects that were seeking Creative New Zealand funds. 
On this week's Midweek Media Watch, Hayden Donnell took a good look at how the quality of media was seriously strained by all this and the need for reporters who understand arts funding as well as editors understand how headlines invoking wokeness get attention and can create a culture war momentum all of their own. That's Midweek Media Watch on our page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed. I mean, one of the things that we're really lucky about these days is that New Zealand Prime Ministers go to APEC and East Asian Summit, and in a non-COVID environment, that's when you actually probably get a lot more face time. I mean, that's how I got to know Barack Obama so well and why we end up playing golf. That was former Prime Minister John Key on the AM show back in June when his successor, Jacinda Ardern, was about to meet President Biden for the first time. And while John Key evidently enjoyed 18 holes in Hawaii with President Obama, it turned out that he wouldn't actually have voted for him if he'd been an American at the time, according to this. And finally, if you were in the States 2016, Clinton or Trump? Oh, Trump. But, I mean, you know, I'm a right-wing voter and I'm never voting left. I'm not saying it would have been the right decision, <laughs> but I'm just saying it's what I would have done. Awesome. That was Sir John on the youth political podcast Both Sides Now, recently saying he would have voted for Trump, who also really loves his golf, in the 2016 US presidential election. And Sir John also said he'd vote for Bolsonaro in the current one in Brazil if he could. Now those were just off-the-cuff comments on a niche political podcast, but it wasn't surprising they were turned into news by our mainstream media, when you consider that one of his successors as National Party leader, Todd Muller, was caught up in a controversy that ran for days when he showed a reporter a MAGA hat that he had in his office. But while John Key said he couldn't back the political left on principle, you can't get much more to the left than the Communist Party in China. But in an RNZ podcast last year called Red Line, Sir John told RNZ's guy in Espiner that President Xi Jinping is a mate. He calls me a friend, and I think he sort of means that. So you're a friend of Xi Jinping? Well, I mean, I don't want to overstate things. He might take me off his Christmas card list, but he does send one every year. And this week, Sir John endorsed the achievements of the Chinese Communist Party and a Chinese state media outlet, The Global Times. In an article headlined New Journey to the Next Glorious Century, John Key hailed Comrade Xi's historic achievements, including eradication of absolute poverty and building prosperity, while in contrast... The US and many parts of the Western world are stuck in a plight of governance to the extent that they have become a source of instability for the world. And there's no question who governs in the People's Republic of China. Sir John also told the Global Times the bureaucracy in China has done a very good job lifting people out of poverty and improving opportunities for the least well-off in China. While internationally, China's Belt and Road Initiative, he said, was crucially important to non-inflationary, highly productive growth around the world. And he also said that China has concerns about growing inequality and social unrest, born with it, when looking at what's going on in the West. The director of the New Zealand Contemporary China Research Centre at Victoria University in Wellington, Jason Young, then told NewsHub that Sir John's comments to the Global Times were classic Chinese government talking points. And he added, It's notable that not a lot of other former prime ministers from liberal democracies had contributed. But among those who did take part was the current Prime Minister of Pakistan, a former president of Slovenia, and a member of the Russian Duma who's been sanctioned by New Zealand, the US and Europe over his backing of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and who recently accused Germany's Chancellor of imitating Hitler because he'd spoken up for Ukraine. 
Now, coincidentally, other headlines in the Global Times this week included one about a delegate to the Chinese Communist Party's National Congress this week saying people of all ethnic groups enjoy security, stability, development and progress in Xinjiang. And another article, also based on another delegate at that National Congress, said foreign firms remain optimistic over China's development. And there were plenty more rosy headlines related to that party congress that's currently underway, which is the reason that China's state-controlled media are calling and quoting Sir John Key and other allies this week in the first place. Now that 20th National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party is a big deal, as TVNZ reporter Kushla Norman described in an explainer video ahead of the gathering this week. Something massive is about to kick off in Beijing. Xi Jinping looks set to score himself an unprecedented third term in power at the Communist Party Congress. He's already spent 10 years in the hot seat. Xi has paved the way for his re-selection by purging political rivals, not naming a successor and scrapping the two-term presidential limit. Behind the closed doors of the Great Hall, 200 Communist Party elites pick their leader and the core leadership team to run China for the next five years. A third term would break the pattern set since the limit was imposed in 1982, and it would cement Xi as China's most powerful leader since Mao Zedong, who ruled for nearly 30 years. And in its podcast, Stuff Explained, Stuff turned to Dominion Post editor Anna Fifield, who was a Beijing bureau chief for the Washington Post in the past. It's really quite a spectacle because the stage is, you know, red carpet, bedecked in red, hammer and sickle behind the, um, behind the leaders. It's quite funny to watch everybody clapping in unison and just the kind of adulation for the leader, Xi Jinping, um, that breaks out across that huge hall. Um, I did notice one time when I was in there at one of these meetings that they actually ran an absentee list on a big screen and 11 people were missing. And I was thinking I would really not want to be one of those delegates who was missing. Fascinating stuff, and these political events are so big that the Chinese state news agency Xinhua has developed its own AI-driven research and reporting tool called Media Brain. In this video from 2018, Xinhua explained how it was deployed at the epic annual Two Sessions conference that year. Thousands of documents, reports, photographs and articles are produced at political events like the Two Sessions. And MediaBrain has been busy collecting this data, scanning images and crunching numbers, basically so we don't have to. On March the 5th, MediaBrain identified that the word development was the most mentioned word in this year's government work report. The word in second place, reform, was more frequently used in any other work report in the past five years. And among the patterns picked up when the MediaBrain scanned the archives was this. Counter-revolution in yellow disappeared in 1994. Labour reform, which is there in blue, was gone by 1996. And re-education, which you can see in green, fell out of use by 2011. But having international human reporters on the ground covering something as significant as this Chinese Communist Party Congress is a much better idea. And last Sunday, under the banner China Emerging Empire, TVNZ's Kushla Norman covered the opening like this. A glimpse into the inner workings of Chinese politics, seen just once every five years. The Communist Party Congress is where a small group of elites is picked to run the world's most populous nation. At the top, this man most likely, Xi Jinping is on track for a historic third term and could rule for life. His opening speech will be scrutinised for shifts in tone on his zero-COVID policy through to taking control of Taiwan. 
it was indeed, and that was where Kushla Norman actually was. The day before on One News, she was introduced like this. Kushla is with us now from Taipei. She's there as travel to China is restricted. Tēnā Kushla. The Congress gets underway tomorrow. What will people in Taiwan be looking out for? Melissa. Well, I think people here will be looking for what Xi Jinping has to say on Taiwan, what kind of signals he might send, what kind of statement he might make. Taiwan is a democratic self-ruled island. China claims it and wants to unify it with the mainland, which most people here oppose. But because China regards Taiwan as part of its own state, that's a huge diplomatic problem for the world us included, as Kushla Norman went on to explain. So who comes to Taiwan's defence if conflict does break out? Well, the US is a big backer. Recently, they approved a very large arms deal to supply Taiwan with arms. That angered China because US also doesn't have diplomatic relations with Taiwan. So it's all very complicated and confusing. But some people watching One News' coverage were confused about why analysis of this Chinese Communist Party landmark five-yearly meeting was coming from the nearby nation that's a thorn in China's side. TVNZ viewers were told the trip was funded by the New Zealand Asia Foundation, which has for years given small grants to news organisations for reporters to travel and, in its words, demystify Asia for New Zealand audiences. But former Prime Minister Helen Clark was mystified by TVNZ's China coverage coming from Taiwan, judging by this on social media this week. Utterly bizarre. It shows lack of depth in TVNZ capacity to understand the world, but not surprising given low priority given to covering international affairs through New Zealand eyes. As you heard there, One News viewers were told Kushla Norman was reporting from Taiwan because travel to China is restricted. And while people arriving into Beijing are subject to mandatory 14-day quarantine still, international journalists are still covering the issues. For example, the BBC's China correspondent Stephen McDonnell reported on the government's ongoing dynamic zero-COVID strategy this week. Many people feel that zero-COVID has become as much about politics as it is about science and that this stems from Xi Jinping becoming China's most powerful leader since Chairman Mao. And Stephen McDonnell also visited Zhangbei in northern China, where President Xi recently dropped in with state media in tow to suggest that farmers should grow a smaller type of spud. Who knows whose idea it really was. It doesn't matter because Xi's role in this has now become part of Communist Party folklore. So was it then entirely appropriate to be reporting on the People's Republic of China and its future direction from Taiwan? Well, TVNZ's acting head of news, Phil O'Sullivan, told Media Watch this week that Kushla Norman's six-day trip was intended to report on Taiwan's relationship to New Zealand, but they timed it to coincide with that Chinese Communist Party Congress, given the likelihood that President Xi would address that thorny issue of Taiwan, and the fact that he did validated their decision, Phil O'Sullivan told us. Now, going to Beijing itself would have been logistically and financially prohibitive, he said, because of visa rules and restrictions on movement. And it would also have had limited editorial value, he said, because of the restrictions that TVNZ believed would be in place within Beijing during the Communist Party Congress. Now, before TVNZ's Kushla Norman left for Taiwan, 
She also interviewed China's ambassador to New Zealand, Wang Xiaolong, about what she called the crushing of dissent in Hong Kong and Xinjiang province. And she bluntly also asked the ambassador if Xi Jinping will invade Taiwan during a third term as president. Though we only know that all of that was discussed because the Embassy of the People's Republic of China here in New Zealand posted a full transcript of that encounter on its website. So far, only snippets from that interview have appeared in two of Kushla Norman's four reports this past week, including this one aired on Thursday. We're willing to work out a solution uh, between the two sides of the Taiwan Strait on the basis of one country, two systems. Now, that report also included Taiwan's Foreign Minister Joseph Wu, who told Kushla Norman they were inspired by the international support for Ukrainians standing against Russia. Even Taiwan and New Zealand supporting Ukraine in different ways. Uh, and therefore, international support, continuous international support for Ukraine, uh, is also a very important factor for the Ukrainians to continue to fight for their freedom. And I think it should be the same for Taiwan. Taiwan's Economic and Cultural Office in New Zealand was pretty pleased with that TVNZ report, tweeting it out on its account with the hashtag StandWithTaiwan. And Taiwan's Foreign Ministry also shared the online version of that on social media, which included a four-and-a-half-minute video interview with Joseph Wu, insisting that Taiwan will resist pressure from China. Now, that prompted some critics to complain that TVNZ could be seen as taking a side in this sensitive subject. But Catherine Churchman, lecturer in Asian Studies at Victoria University of Wellington, told MediaWatch this week that TVNZ reporting on the China-Taiwan situation from Taiwan and on the cementing of Xi Jinping's rule in the People's Republic of China really was a good thing for New Zealand viewers. Oh, definitely, and I think it's it's a corrective to... Um, years of focusing on what's going on in English-speaking countries, uh, particularly at the detriment um, of um, looking at what is going on in countries where English is not spoken, where we can't just take media reporting straight directly from them. It was a very good thing to do, actually, and it's very important for New Zealand as well. If you have a trading partner uh, the size of China, we really need to be paying attention to their internal politics more. TVNZ has had a bit of criticism for reporting the Congress itself from Taiwan. Uh, This was in part because travel to China is restricted, with the words they used. Uh, So former Prime Minister Helen Clark, for example, saying that this was a bad decision. Well, you'll see this happening more and more now. And and as China has become, uh, as the PRC became more autocratic, it's become much more difficult for journalists to function inside the People's Republic of China. It's been harder for them to find people to talk to as well because people are reluctant to talk to them as well. Now, Taiwan, of course, being a different country and a democratic country and also a country where you have a lot of expertise on uh, the internal politics of the People's Republic of China across the strait, of course, it's a natural place where uh, where you would go and ask these questions now. Um, But, yeah, lots of international uh, media company. Lots of foreign correspondents have moved uh, from Hong Kong uh, and from China over to Taiwan now, and they report on on, on China from Taiwan rather than uh, that's That's pretty normal. Even if you did go to the trouble of going through the quarantine and so on to be in China when that 20th Party Congress happened, would, would it actually be worth it? Would you get any access and would you be able to ask people what they thought? It's not a really fun place for journalists to work anymore. 
especially if they don't have Chinese, I think it would be even more difficult because then you have to rely on translators. Chinese people have to protect themselves as well from their own government. And one of the ways to protect themselves is to simply not to talk to people. In Taiwan, they, they've been observing the internal politics of the People's Republic of China since its foundation. And it's a perfectly legitimate place to send a journalist to, to report on China nowadays. 20 years ago or 10 years ago, I'd say that would be unusual. But we live in, in uh, what's called Xi Jinping's new era now. And the new era, unfortunately, means uh, increased autocracy, decreased freedom of speech, and a lot more fear on, on behalf of Chinese people to actually talk about what they really think. But given that uh, Taiwan is, you know, existentially in dispute with China, China regards it as still part of uh, the Chinese state, doesn't that in one sense make it exactly the worst place for a Western journalist to go uh, if you want to uh, have your reports taken seriously as, uh, you know, dispassionate and impartial when it comes to um, the People's Republic of China? It's not that that was the only source that uh, Kushla got. I mean, she had an interview with the ambassador of the People's Republic of China in New Zealand as well. And it's not like she's only been interviewing people uh, in Taiwan uh, about this, even though she was reporting from Taiwan. And some of the media organizations in Taiwan, I mean, they well have sources inside the PRC. Uh, if, if people are thinking this, that, that, that it's, it's biased and a problem, it's because they really don't understand what's going on inside the PRC now. And just how difficult it is for people, to, a journalist, to do their job uh, properly. And finally, uh, Sir John Key uh, raised a few eyebrows when those comments of hers appeared in uh, that rather glowing piece in the Global Times, which is a Chinese Communist Party-controlled media outlet, effectively. I mean, do you think it matters that he was quoted in that? Yeah, but that wasn't the only thing he did, either. He even refused to say that Xi Jinping was authoritarian in a TV interview a few weeks back. And that was an interview for New Zealand, a New Zealand media outlet. Even if they do have uh, critical things to say, nothing that they say is critical is going to appear in it. And it doesn't give him a very good look at all, really. That was Catherine Churchman, lecturer in Asian Studies at Victoria University of Wellington, talking to me there about coverage of the 20th Congress of the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing this week, which cemented the rule of President Xi Jinping, which TVNZ covered from Taiwan, along with reports on the growing tension between China and Taiwan. This week, the staff at the regional newsrooms of Stuff, the nation's biggest publisher of national news and newspapers, received disconcerting news from their bosses. They plan to restructure local news gathering in a way that means fewer reporters in the local newsrooms that produce papers like the Timadu Herald, Southland Times, Nelson Mail and Manawatu Standard. If the proposal goes ahead, there may be no reporters there at all at night or most weekends. Now, Stuff says this need not mean job cuts overall or that local news goes unreported. They will handle news at other centres instead, possibly staffed by journalists currently in posts, which will be disestablished in the local newsrooms. And a decision on this is due at the start of next month. Hayden Janelle also took a look at the implications of this and the reactions to it in this week's Midweek Media Watch, available on our webpage, the RNZ app, or in our podcast feed if you missed it last Wednesday on Nights with Karen Hay. 
But Stuff was also at pains to point out this week there are no plans to change the publication, circulation and distribution of those regional papers, most of which have been in print for well over 100 years. But they did say we will continue to review our operations as more readers make the transition to digital news. Now, the closure of local and regional papers under similar pressures had already created so-called news deserts across the United States, places that local affairs went underreported or even unreported altogether. And that trend was documented by the former newspaper editor turned journalism professor Kenton Bird from Moscow, Idaho, in the west of the US. And in 2010, Dr Bird came here to check out how our papers were doing I've seen dailies from New Plymouth, the Taranaki Daily News. I've seen the Dominion Post, Hawks Bay Today, the Gisborne Herald, Bay of Plenty Times. So when Kenton Bird arrived back in New Zealand recently, he was delighted to find that those daily papers he read and analysed here 12 years ago are still going. I believe I called them lively, interesting and fun to read. That still seems to be the case. And you know, places like Cambridge and Warrensville and Gordonton all have a strong main street with uh, small retailers that are the bread and butter of those community newspapers. And next weekend here on Media Watch, you can hear more of what Kenton Bird makes of how our papers and the rest of our media have changed since his last visit and what's been happening in those places in the States where long-standing papers have died off or were picked off by opportunistic investors keen to get their hands on the assets, but a bit less keen on paying for quality local journalism. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, while the Communist Party is clearly in firm control in China, and so is its leader, the opposite is clearly true of the Conservative Party in the UK, where the media have no problems pointing that out. I'm sorry to have to interrupt this programme, but we've got some miserable news for you, and we're going to bring it to you on the hour, every hour. presenter Lisa Tarbuck on BBC's Radio 2 in the UK last Monday, not exactly relishing another hourly bulletin of mostly bad political news in the UK. But even before the Prime Minister Liz Truss threw in the towel on Friday, a week of chaos in politics provided British broadcasters with a wealth of news that was so bad it was good, sort of. On Wednesday, for example, the news at 10 on the UK's main commercial channel ITV began like this. It has been a night of astonishing scenes at Westminster with reports of jostling, manhandling, bullying and shouting outside the parliamentary lobbies in a supposed vote of confidence in the government. The deputy chief whip was reported to have left the scene saying, I'm absolutely effing furious, I just don't effing care anymore, before he resigned along with the chief whip. However, the same night, the correspondent for Germany's public TV channel ARD1 didn't feel the need to sanitise those comments for her German audience, who understand English. Stellvertretende Fraktionschefs, das Parlament mit den Worten verließ, I'm f***ing furious and I don't f***ing care anymore. Ich übersetze das jetzt mal nicht, aber das ist eine Partei, wo wirklich woraufhin... And when the whip responsible for a governing party's discipline can't control his effing language in Parliament, there's clearly a problem. But he wasn't alone. The same night, Channel 4 News presenter Krishnan Gurumurthy was caught on a hot mic dissing the Minister of State for Northern Ireland, Steve Baker. It wasn't a stupid question, Steve. You know it. I'm very happy to go up against you on trust any day. (laughs) 
What a <laughs> Oh dear. Well, just last week, Krishnan Gurumuthi was more concerned about bad language when he was asking the Financial Times journalist Gillian Tett to respond to the Trust government's economic blame shifting. Can you just give us your, your verdict on that? Well, to use non-technical term, that's pretty much bollocks. And um, I'm not sure if we're allowed to say that, so I'm sorry if you were offended. Um, but, uh, but over to you, Cathy. Christian and Gurumurthy seemed startled that a member of the Financial Times editorial board would use such anatomical language, and he looked up what the UK's standards watchdog had to say about that word. The Ofcom regulator website describes it as medium language, potentially unacceptable, less problematic when used to mean nonsense. I should, however, apologise to people who were relying on subtitles uh, for whom it was spelt bullocks. And either way, it is a lot less bad than the word he used on Monday to describe the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. Now, coincidentally this week, Today FM host Tova O'Brien was also angsting about a rude word that she'd used when confronting the Assistant Minister of Housing, Marama Davidson. One person or even a child sleeping in a car is not acceptable. Um, but we just have <laughs> well, to be... We just... No Tova O'Brien told her listeners it wasn't disrespectful to confront a minister with the S-word like that and pointed out that Marama Davidson herself had earlier spoken of wanting to reclaim the C-word. So Tova O'Brien reckoned Marama Davidson wouldn't have been offended. But Tova O'Brien did also acknowledge it wasn't just about them, it's about the listeners and the standards they expect. And like Krishnan Gurumurthy in the UK, Tova O'Brien turned to the regulator for backup. According to the BSA, which monitors and tracks these things, it isn't considered a swear word or an offensive word in New Zealand anymore, but I'm interested to know your thoughts on this. Well, our thoughts on this are, that's only partly right. You can now hear the S word in news output. Even RNZ's news shows will leave it in if a guest uses the word or a member of the public in a vox pop. And the last time that the Broadcasting Standards Authority surveyed Kiwis, it did indeed remove the S-word from the list of offensive words and names that it puts to the test. Now, these were replaced with a selection of ethnic slurs, pejorative sexual identity slang words, and insulting terms targeting the disabled. And you can imagine what those might be. But does that mean that most people are OK with media presenters using the S-word on the air? Back in 2010, the Broadcasting Standards Authority's earlier What Not to Swear report found that 52% of people said it depends upon the context and European-origin New Zealanders were a lot less bothered than other ethnic groups by that word. For example, twice as many Pacifica people who were surveyed didn't approve of it. Anyway, having apologised to Marama Davidson for having used the bad word last week, Tover O'Brien went on to turn it into a daily debate topic for her show this week. Is the S word still a swear word? I think we've probably got a bit past it, haven't we? It's not that offensive. It's 24 minutes past seven. One story, two sides. Context equals understanding. Where do you land? And up against fellow host Duncan Garner, Tova O'Brien liberally used the words that she reckoned the Broadcasting Standards Authority has now given a green light to is no longer a swear word. But just because it isn't doesn't mean we should fling it at people. Just because they're not swear words anymore, I wouldn't call you a bastard, a dick or a prick, Duncan. Evidently, Duncan Garner was happy to fling that word around, putting it into his debate speech for effect so much that the Today FM producers actually refused to let him read it out on the air. It's full of... It's obscene. You cannot say that, Duncan. You Duncan. can't. How many years have you been doing this? 27. I know. You should know better. 
The producers did, though, let Duncan Garner publish that on the Today FM website instead, where you'll find it if you really feel you need more of the S-word in your life. But alternatively, you could just tune into coverage of the UK government's meltdown and watch the S-word hitting the fan in real time. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media after the 10 o'clock news next Wednesday night on Midweek Media Watch on Nights with Karen Hay. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.